Hello and welcome to The Affairs Current. My name is Carter Vance, your host as always. Our email is theaffairscurrent at gmail.com. Our blog, theaffairscurrent.blogspot.com uh, for all the show notes for today's episode. Um, as I said, you know, we uh, recently put out the UN Movie uh, Podcast, and today we're going to bring you the UN Music Podcast, um, the world's most inconsistently released podcast. Um, however, every six months, uh, well, I suppose we are consistent, but not uh, timely or something like that. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, uh, we always like to do at the end of the year and at the half-year interval our, our music list, and who do I have with me uh, to do this? Hi, it's Isaac, the Affairs Current, uh, recurring music correspondent, and I'm really excited to be here for what I think is now our third year of doing this year-end list. I think so. it's actually our fourth year, because we did 2015, we did 2016, that, 2017. That's how so. numbers work. Yes. I'm very excited. Yes. Well, four years of this podcast. Yes. Very exciting. Hopefully this will be our most uh, nicely paced and uh, consistently rewarding podcast yet Hopefully, our and, uh, just crowd of listeners. Yes. I uh, would like to thank you. And yes, and uh, we are recording this on an actual microphone for once, so hopefully you'll notice a better timbre to my uh, voice and a lack of uh, background crackling noises. It's very exciting. Uh, a decade and you might get a uh, mic for each of us. Maybe, maybe. We'll, we'll uh, think big. Anyway, so um, on this episode, we're going to split this into two parts. On this episode, we're going to do our countdown of our tracks of the year, our top five tracks for the second half of the year, um, and then a kind of grab bag of different... Uh, things that were interesting in music this year, uh, or things that don't quite fit into the top ten per se, and then we'll uh, do the second half of this episode where we go through our top ten proper, uh, but we'll release that in a few days after this. So, uh, let's get into this. So, let's start with our tracks. So, I do have one thing I want to start with, which is an honorable mention, which is outside of my uh, tracks proper. So... Uh, I want to give an honorable mention shout-out to Fast Slow Disco by St. Vincent. Um, and this is an honorable mention because it is a sort of reinterpretation of the song Slow Disco off of her last album, Mass Education. Or, excuse me, Mass Seduction, I always remember. Although there is now an album called Mass Education, which is another set of reinterpretations of the songs from Mass Seduction. Anyway, um, Fast Slow Disco is basically a... So on the original uh, album, Slow Disco is this sort of... Chanteuse kind of um, smoky torch song, but the lyrics are about being in a disco and having this kind of like out of body experience about, um, you know, uh, being sort of alienated by the whole experience kind of thing. Whereas this song, it's remixed into an actual dance track, that, or like a dance rock sort of track that you might actually play at a disco. Um, so it more aligns the music with the lyrics. Um, it's just a really interesting study in how you can take the same basic structure and the same lyrics um, and put it in a totally different context. And in my opinion, it's actually a better uh, song than the original Slow Disco. Um, so I wanted to give a brief uh, shout-out to that. Yeah, uh, I haven't heard it, but I will. I think I uh, will admit that St. Vincent's Lost didn't do a lot for me. So I, I recall that I liked it more than you did. Yeah. Um, okay, but let's start with your, your yeah, number five let's track. let's start off the track. So just... For uh, anyone who cares about the consistency of this list or wants to uh, get angry that we forgot uh, a really good track, I'd highlight, uh, just sort of point out that we're talking about stuff that came out from June on. Yes. Uh, specifically for this category uh, alone for the year, for the albums we're going to talk about the whole year, but uh, starting off with uh, my first 
uh, highlight track from the second half of 2018 is a white off Brockhampton's debut studio album, Iridescence. Mm. And I think that there were maybe two or three tracks I could have picked off this. I definitely don't think it's as strong as any of Brockhampton's breakout releases this year, which I rated very highly yeah. and I think was just a total breath of fresh air within what was coming out at hip hop at the time, but also like the consistency and quality that a mixtape cycle could actually produce. Something that, you know, I'd argue we hadn't, you know, rivals, uh, although this is obviously uh, buoyed by the fact that they have eight or nine members, uh, strain like a consistency of quality in 2017 that rivaled, you know, iconic runs by Future and Lil Wayne. Although obviously in a very different lane, a yeah. pop rap R&B lane. But I think that that kind of electric fusion of uh, like mixtape posse cut energy and talented rap with a more pop uh, R&B flavor obviously did a lot for the group and I, I think they're going to make a lot of exciting music going forward. I think uh, to me the best track they released this year was Wait. Um, I think that uh, generally I found the instrumentals on their last album pretty consistent. So. It wasn't so much on that that it's a standout, but I think that Wait manages to hone in on like a very sort of uh, specific idea, the idea of kind of carrying the weight of uh, the time that you feel you've been beating your head against a wall or uh, holding, you know, certain uh, pains inside and not dealing with them. And that even though, you know, you're not in that situation anymore, you're still shaped by the effects of that and that still kind of uh, that that affects who you are today and what you have to deal with so in terms of being you know maybe the most uh, I think the, the most well realized version of Brockhampton's kind of secondary role is kind of group therapy and uh, delivering some really I think the, some of the strongest individual performances on uh, their album uh, I sort of sneaks in at the beginning of my life Okay, um, yeah, I mean, I think I feel similarly <clears throat> about the, the Iridescence album that you did. Um, now, remind me, Wait is towards the end of the track list? Wait here. is, it's right in the middle. It's, um, it's the, uh, I'm trying to think. It, it starts out with the Kevin Abstract verse yes. about being in the closet and yeah. then, um, and sort of, uh, dealing with that. And yeah. then there's, uh, I think I know, uh, Dom is also on it, yeah. I think, so... I don't know, I think that was more, like, I, I think that uh, Iridescence sort of has, like, a more, uh, although, except for, you know, uh, Joba is sort of a more kind of, like, toned-down, yes. focused yeah. Brockhampton, at least in terms of, the, like, less goofy, yeah. uh, and especially in terms of the delivery, so <coughs> I thought that they kind of, like, um, articulated that new maturity best yeah i i agree with that um but i do feel similarly i think there was an energy to the saturation trilogy that is a bit lacking with iridescence mm -hmm. so in that sense the album itself was a bit of a disappointment for me but i definitely agree that there were some strong tracks on mm -hmm. there wait is one of them so my number five um is 17 by choice of am mm -hmm. uh, which is the opening uh, track on his newest album uh bloom um you know Bloom was an album that got a lot of notice uh, this year as a kind of interesting um you know, there was this trend in, in pop of the kind of darker pop or sad pop kind of trend. And it was one that got a lot of notice. Frankly, I listened to the album and 
it really starts off very strong with 17 as the opener and i think 17 but because it is darker and it is more personal and it is him really talking about like his experiences as like a young gay man like trying to navigate that um the rest of the album struck me as a little bit too the the opener promised a certain darkness and a certain introspection that i didn't really get with the rest of the album however um, 17 as a track in of itself has these really interest. It has a really interesting contrast between the verse and the chorus. It is that kind of classic, you know, Pixies Nirvana almost kind of thing where it explodes and bursts into life at the chorus. Um, and he's also, you know, on some of his other tracks, I find him a bit kind of chirpy as a singer. Whereas here, I think he was much more measured and almost more soulful. Um, so yeah, it was one of those things where I, I really like this individual track. And we should always point out when we do the track list is that. These are tracks that do not appear on an album that is on our albums list. If an album mm-hmm. appears on the album list, a track, all tracks from it are ineligible to appear on the track list. Um, so I think 17 is really the perfect kind of song for that because it is, it promises something that the album doesn't fully deliver, but as an individual track, I've really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I will admit I haven't listened to uh, Troy Savan's album, although I... Uh, obviously come across my radar uh, maybe I'll get around to it there you go <laughs> um, okay so number my, my number four track is uh, off the uh, why what uh, I think some people who need to get off uh, our HHH call uh, the <laughs> Wyoming tapes uh, from the <laughs> Kanye and Kid Cudi collaborative album Kids See Ghosts uh, before I say what it is I just want to take a minute to point out that uh, there were many many good songs off I think almost all or even I will say I will venture I will be so bold as to say all of the albums. All the albums at, at least came out in at least have uh, a memorable track or two. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, just to uh, highlight every song on Daytona that does not have a feature. Um, yes. Even the ones that have features are all right. Well, I will talk about that later. Yeah, uh, but but um, and uh, I think say uh, Adam and Eve off Nazir. Um, and yeah. Yikes off Yay. Yeah. Uh, most of Tiana Ta- Taylor's album, which I think that if you're uh, very into like a certain kind of like raw or sample based like R and yeah. uh, R and B hip hop influenced R and B like yeah. a hard '90s throwback, yeah. it might be one of the best albums of the year for you. But yeah. uh, it just doesn't really rank in this list. So my track, uh, kind of sort of a representative pick of five, a sort of grab bag of uh, five short albums of relatively uh, consistent quality all things considered is a reborn of kids see ghosts mm-hmm. um i think this is maybe more of a sentimental pick than anything else because it's i think far less progressive than some of the tracks on kids see ghosts it's far less well executed than some of the tracks on daytona just in terms of <coughs> the simplicity of you know and uh consistency of the beat and the lyrics but i think that reborn succeeds because it draws out uh, it manages to draw out an energy that uh, Kid Cudi and Kanye basically had um, 10 years ago on uh, 808s and Heartbreak. Yeah. It manages to kind of update uh, that sound with the kind of new uh, icy trap R&B thing that has just sort of become the dominant, uh, dominant mode of sad, the dominant mode of sad hip-hop. Yeah. And I think that it's sort of... Um, it uh, and I don't want to credit Kanye for all of it because I think Cuddy, you know, obviously does a lot on the project to kind of soften uh, 
the kind of edges or drawbacks that Kanye has gotten late in his career, but I think that we get one of the strongest and most personal verses uh, that Kanye has delivered in a long time on this track. Um, I think that uh, despite the fact that uh, the, cardi the cardio audio line um, oh, yeah, just annoys pretty, me, that's it's bad. okay, but it, it, <laughs> it, 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 you don't need you don't need a punchline in every verse, which no. if I had a critique of Feel the Love, it would probably be that. Yeah. Um, so uh, on that basis, uh, you know, I don't think it's a perfect track, but I think that it definitely, in terms of uh, kind of showing uh, the two of these artists who've had very public struggles with both kind of mental illness and media and their kind of own fame, um, returning to an old sound and modernizing it and also just kind of producing, uh, I think, something as emotionally resonant as the stuff they were doing at their peak. Uh, it was, to me, the highlight of Kanye's output. I, I disagree that it was the highlight of Kanye's output, but I certainly think this is a good track. And it's kind of interesting how much, you know, 808s and Heartbreak was this very singular thing when it came out but now you know the dominant mode in rap music i mean well i mean i wouldn't say totally dominant but certainly amongst like the younger generation of soundcloud rappers is highly influenced by that album and i think this is almost them like you said kind of coming back and reclaiming the throne almost with this track um and yeah it is good um and i i think kids see ghost is an interesting album like in terms of the psychedelic flourishes that it has and that kind of thing um, but I also feel like structurally overall it had a lot of problems to me. Um, I will talk about my thoughts on the whole sort of the Wyoming Tapes uh, project as, as it's come to be known. I'll talk about that a little later. Um, so my number four, which is I guess sort of related, is uh, Ape Shit by uh, mm. Beyonce and, and Jay-Z. Um, so the, their collaborative album that they put out, uh, frankly, is... In my opinion, mostly like a tour document, and it was done to sort of have additional songs that they could perform together, like on this joint tour that they're doing. I heard a great uh, online description of it, and I apologize for not attributing it, which described it as a, the album equivalent of like a prestige airport, like bookstore. Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> reading. is. It is, it absolutely is. Um, but that being said, I do think that they had something singularly going with Ape Shit, and like just, and it, it's just a really fun song in the sense of, so. It's basically like their take on a sort of Migos-style trap song. Um, and, like, there's just something very enjoyable about, like, how hyped it up it is. How, like, Jay-Z's verse is, like, kind of lazy but fun. Um, and, like, it has, like, you know, Beyonce making growling noises. And, like, there's all kinds of, like, you know, um, literal samples of, like, monkeys running in the background and things like that. And also just, like, the fact that they somehow were able to book out the Louvre to make the to make the music video. Like, there's a certain kind of, um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, of Beyonce. We've kind of discussed this previously. I, I don't connect with it, her in the way that a lot of people do. Um, I do like some Jay-Z, but there is something sort of singular about the level of kind of, like, opulence that they are portraying on, on this, uh, this song and... Um, you know, there, there's a certain term of, like, fuck you money. This is, like, fuck you money, the song, um, because there is this kind of, like, um, quality to it of, like, the almost imperial dominance that they portray. And I, I think, as far as that goes, and as far as an interesting experiment of, like, blending kind of the Beyonce R&B style of things with a more trap-influenced instrumental um, and a more trap-influenced kind of um, rhythmic flow to it, um, I really liked it. 
Yeah, I think that uh, Apeshit is definitely a shortlist for video of the year. Yeah. Um, I think that the kind of visual, both uh, the visuals for Lemonade, but also the visuals for 444, which didn't receive, they weren't screened in theaters, but they're like, the, I thought the music videos yeah. for that were like really strong and diverse. So yeah. I'm excited to see what that what they and their camp keep doing in terms of like audio, visual, and kind of event. Yes. Uh, because I think they really, uh, like both uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z, the Carters, yeah. uh, are really pushing the boundaries of that. I'm excited to see what they do. Uh, although, uh, I don't, I think that um, that track maybe didn't uh, rate for me uh, as much compared to, I guess, my number, uh, my number three track. Uh-huh. And um, the last hit, We've been talking about a lot of hip hop so far. Uh, the last hip hop track I have to talk about, which is uh, 215 of uh, Black Thoughts EP. Mm. So I think this to me was, uh, and I don't just like saying bars because I know it's a reductive way to talk about a song, but <coughs> I think that uh, both on the EP in general, but just most specifically in this song, which is really kind of a way of uh, introducing everyone to his very. Uh, I think very late in the game might actually be a reductive way to talk about it because he doesn't seem to have uh, lost a black thought, doesn't seem to have lost a lot of step uh, with age. And in fact, I think he seems a lot more energized. I, I'm not like a, a historian of all the material the Roots put out over their career, but he definitely sounds incredibly energized for a rapper 20 years into his career on the mm-hmm. EP. And I think 215 for me succeeds in a way that some of his other material doesn't because it has like a dynamism of like storytelling and theme and kind of just metatextual reference and that it, it combines uh, it, but it also manages to be funny. Like it just, um, I think demonstrates really what the, at least to me, I speak to like some of the highest uh, levels of operation in terms of uh, songcraft on the writing front, which is an ability to be both uh, kind of irreverent and um, like deeply uh, like plugged into meaningful issues and kind of speaking on them at the same time and not feeling like not not being preachy but while at the same time not being uh, like disrespectful or not conscious yeah um, and then it's also I think just kind of breathless because it, it lasts for four and a half minutes and you don't really notice there isn't a yeah, mark. That's very so true. I think on that basis alone it's, it's uh, kind of a distillation and also I think and uh, I'm, I really kind of come at this uh, backwards starting with what I like so much about the track but the production from Ninth Wonder which is fairly consistent across the kind of short uh, EP uh, I think has my favorite uh, his my favorite beat of his on this track just because of the uh, kind of chopped French soul sample. Yes, chopped French soul samples are great. Uh, they should be in more hip hop beats. Um, just off the top of my head, uh, the D- Danny Brown B-side Lions Den. Yes, totally underrated beat. <coughs> I want more classic French soul, uh, like French chipmunk soul, in hip hop songs. And uh, it would be great if more of them came over four and a half minutes of Black Thought freestyling. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely liked uh, the the Black Thought EP, and I've liked you know the Roots for a long time. And he definitely, I, I definitely agree with you that he has been always one of those MCs that manages to balance like having consciousness in the lyrics, um, but with also like just saying badass shit, and also like just ha- like being able to technically like a technical exercise like to 
to rap for four minutes straight yeah. and like there is no chorus and you don't really mind um, is, is something. And certainly, like, obviously, you know, he is operating in a very particular, particularly having Ninth Wonder produce it, is operating in a very particular kind of like classicist kind of hip hop um, vein, um, which, you know, may or may not be your speed, but if you like it, um, definitely that was a good track off of there. So, my number three um, is South London Forever by Florence and the Machine. Um, their new album, uh, well, her new album, however you want to frame that, um, is alright, um, but I, I feel like of her recent albums, it's probably the, the production is the blandest, and it doesn't really have the kind of like 60s psychedelia flourishes that I found interesting on, on her last album. Um, however, you know, she always manages to come up with, like, one particular sing singular kind of song on, on her records, even when I'm kind of mixed on the records themselves. And South London Forever is this sort of, it's a languidly structured, uh, like, ballad almost, but it's more, it's more something that builds and builds and builds to a crescendo at the end. And what I really liked about it is that it is her getting a little bit more autobiographical and a little bit more specific, and it basically is about um, her days, like, singing in bars in South London and that kind of thing. And I'm always a fan of when somebody, um, you know, obviously an example of this would be, like, Bruce Springsteen, but, like, whenever somebody can, like, very specifically ground what they're talking about in a very particular place at a very particular moment in time... Um, I really like that because it brings a sort of concreteness to the images um, in the, the lyrics and also just the way that they that she manages to balance the sort of piano and the string section and her voice um, moving throughout it um, as the, the song sort of slowly builds from just an acoustic guitar and her to this kind of one more widescreen thing. Um, I do wish, probably this plays better live and I do, the production sort of in a sense, lets the song down because it is kind of colorless. Um, so that's a flaw with it. However, the song itself is very good, and you know, obviously, she's an amazing singer. Um, so yeah, my number three, South London Forever. I will admit I did not listen to any Florence and the Machine. Uh, I I mean, other than, to be I, honest with you, other than that track, you are not missing much. Yeah, um, I kind of figured that would be the case. It's fine. That's to me, Florence and the Machine has always been an artist that. Uh, think occupies like a particular sound and sometimes uh you know i might find myself wanting for that but uh it's never been a particular fave for me so i can't really don't take my disinterest as a mark they <coughs> haven't done interesting stuff this decade there you go um so my number two track is uh i shall love two uh off the massive julia holter album aviary which now how long is that album up. oh it's 90 minutes um so it's not it's not perhaps the, the, the longest album that's no. been constructed, but I think just as a Especially function this of year, but anyway. pure uh, density, well, I mean, it's, it's longer than Dose Your Dreams. Well, it's longer than Dose Your Dreams, but it's yeah. not as long as, you know, Culture 2 or... Uh, oh, yeah, Culture or, 2, or God. The, the Ray Shremmoon record or, like, something yeah, like that. Anyway, continue, continue. I'm sorry. Continue. Di digression uh, is a, just an incredibly dense album. Just, uh, you know, uh, where it isn't, you know, as a double album, like, it's not a, it's not split into two discs, it doesn't have, you know, 20 plus tracks, it is, you know, 15 or 16 tracks of 6 to 8 minute songs, and they're all abstract art pop uh, compositions. So I think it's, it's far too of kind of a punishing, confusing, I'll admit I haven't listened to the whole thing through, so it really could not make my list, although I think parts of it are 
uh, very interesting. And if you're someone who kind of likes the fusion of pop sensibilities and avant-garde kind of composition, mm -hmm. then Julia Holter continues to, I think, be kind of ahead of that field in terms of consistency and uh, willingness to kind of tie things together into interesting packages. And I wouldn't say uh, that this, um, that this, uh, the album obviously didn't work for me as well as her last one did, which I rated very highly on my end of your list. Yes. But I Shall Love 2 off this <coughs> album uh, really stuck out for me as a kind of uh, just sort of a melding or more of a half step between the more conventional pop stuff she was doing on uh, To Have You in My Wilderness. Ha uh, have You in My Wilderness, thank you. And, um, you know, the more kind of uh, cacophonous, unstructured stuff she's doing on this album. And it has, um, I think, serving as kind of the, the climax or the resolution to uh, the chaos that is really the theme of that album. Uh, serving as, uh, you know, I think one of the most powerful kind of ballads, uh, with sort of torch song for... Uh, love, but I think optimism, uh, just as much as love, uh, or kind of openness to the possibility of kind of joy and peace in the world, which I think are all important, uh, you know, messages, but I think the reason why the song uh, resonates so strongly is because it kind of recognizes that those aren't, like, cheap sentiments, mm -hmm. but they're, like, hard-won battles, yeah. uh, certainly today. So uh, Julia Holter, I think, is uh, always uh, an interesting artist to listen to, and although I will admit I did not make it all the way through a new album, this track uh, was one of my favorites of the year. So I'll be honest with you and say that the 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 intimidating length of that album really put me off of it, and I was kind of uh, so I haven't listened to the album, so I can't yeah. honestly tell you what my uh, what my feelings on it are. But you certainly did a good job of selling that particular track. So my number two then is a song where. <coughs> this is kind of one where I had a bit of a of a change of heart on it, and it's um, above the bodega, black its local business by uh, Titus Andronicus. Now, well, in the earlier episode, we we talked about like uh, Are we breaking the rules. Well, technically, I, yes. I'm, I'm, I don't actually care. None of this matters. Te technically, yes, but I wanted to shout this out, and it was kind of a, a thing where I was initially not very fond of the new Titus Andronicus album. I thought it was like kind of messy and. And frankly kind of lazy in certain parts but then I, I got into it a little more and I my opinion of the album overall changed a little bit but um, I really did find that this song in particular uh, so really what I liked about it is actually like the lyrical premise of the song more than anything else um, because basically the whole premise of the song is like you know, I'm hiding my emotions from everybody else except the guy who runs the bodega down down the street where I go and buy everything. Um, and just the way that he manages to make it this kind of, like, clever song about, like, grappling with, like, depression and, like, mental illness, and there's, like, only one person you can be honest with, and it's this, like, weirdly modulated interaction that only comes about because you need, like, these mundane things of life. I found that really interesting. And the fact that he then surrounds it with this kind of like raucous ballroom kind of stomp of a of a of a rock song where he like for the hell of it at the end throws in a gospel choir, um, really sort of it's almost like I mean obviously for a very long time Titus Andronicus has had a, a Springsteen inspiration to it um, as well, 
But just to say that um, you know the the way in which the song is uh, structured uh, really kind of gives you this idea of like a slowly building kind of self realization about about um, what he's talking about in the song. And it's also just like even if you remove that lyrical kind of thing, it is definitely the most fun song on the album. It has this kind of like you know even the the background piano is this almost kind of like Jerry Lee Lewis kind of like boogie woogie kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I this was one that I really had to turn around on. So above the bodega. Yeah, I I really went through kind of a mix of emotions on the new Titus Andronicus because I really wanted to like it, and I think that um, that's definitely a really strong opener to the album. But I think it just really it didn't quite deliver on its promise of being kind of like a weird, like, tot, sort of like, I don't want to say who, but it's just sort of like tot, set out of time daydream through like late 60s, early 70s, like high production rock. Yeah. Um, but just sort of updated and with like, uh, kind of telling that story of, uh, I guess that point, part of his life that Patrick uh, Staples wanted to talk about. Um, it didn't really land for me, but that's definitely uh, in terms of like a cl- being a classicist rock song with like an interesting perspective, uh, like a standout track uh, mm-hmm. from the first half of the year. Okay. So my number one song, and I think this uh, might be my cert- I think this might be my single of the year, uh, really off you know any uh, album that's come out in the past six months, you know, uh, talked about later or not is uh, Noid off the Eve's Tumor, the uh, new Eve's Tumor record, uh, Safe in the Hands of Love, Noid being the lead single. Um, this song and this album are, uh, they're just fucking insane. Um, and not necessarily because they're the most chaotic, abstract thing, uh, which definitely, I, I don't necessarily think I tend to like push towards or seek out, but why this album is so insane is because it's such a... Um, just unpredictable blend of influences and styles all being smashed together on top of each other and i think sometimes it it doesn't really work as well and that's why this you know album isn't on my list even though i think it's one of the most interesting but simultaneously like listenable and compelling albums that came out this year uh but i think that the kind of undeniable highlight from this album is noid um noid uh, it means a lot of things get noited Paranoid. Avoid the Noid. He Avoid. ruins pizzas. The Noid does ruin pizzas. So I think that this, uh, you know, song, like a lot of the songs, but this song kind of operates in this, uh, like, weird style of abstract storytelling that Eve's Tumor operates on, where it seems uh, like he's very distraught about something, but he never tells you what it is. And uh, <coughs> just sort of developed through the album, it has kind of like a surreal like kind of uh almost it's like a like a a songs about a a lament for a tragedy that happened in some like weird alternate dimension uh i've also heard this described as arca with melody so maybe that (laughs) well that's maybe that might that's pleasant that's good (laughs) maybe that might attract some people to it i definitely so um just maybe I've done a, a good enough job selling the album. I think that specifically why Noid stood out to me is just because it um, just kind of opens the album up as its poppiest song and it starts just immediately in media res with this like string, this orchestral string sample and this just insanely patterned kind of 90s big beat drum section that uh, 
then just kind of morphs into like a 2000s indie rock banger. Like it's just a completely shape-shifting song that it, it might be about police brutality, it might be about agoraphobia. I haven't quite figured might out. Might be about the Noid. It might be about the Noid. We don't know it's not about the Noid. So I think that uh, first off, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope that uh, you obviously you know uh, care enough about music that I think you should probably at least give a listen to the new Eve's Tumor record because I think it's one of the more cutting-edge things to happen in pop this year. And uh, for me, uh, Noid is the most instantly memorable song off that. Okay, well, I, I must confess that I didn't listen to the album. So Man, I, it got a 9.1 on Pitchfork. I, I know, I know, but it was one of those things where I was busy and certain things passed me by, and that was one of them. But I am going to check it out on the basis of your recommendation, because I do like... Arca, and I also like Melody, so you, you have you have sold it in that sense. Okay, so my number one, which may be another sort of cheat, although I, I believe I hadn't listened to the full record by the time we did the last uh, podcast, so that, um, is Poem by U.S. Girls. Mm. Um, so the... I think I'm not going to talk too much about the album overall because I, I, I am almost certain that we are going to hear about it later in the podcast. Um, so... Why I like this song in particular off the album is that it. I think it manages to encompass... Um, it comes towards the end of the record and it manages to sort of encompass um, most of what, you know, U.S. Girls is trying to really say with all of this album. It's a very good sort of summative statement, both musically and lyrically, of the themes of the record. And what I really like about it is the sort of... You know, it's basically based on this kind of like... I would say it's a sort of circular synth pattern at the center of the song, which it from which it builds these kind of um, different elements that are thrown into the track uh, over time. And whereas some of the other tracks on the on the album, like I'll, I'll mention Pearly Gates, for instance, that's a good song, but it does sort of stick in one mode for the entire track almost, and it is this kind of almost like almost periodic sort of form of disco. Um, whereas this is a much more straightforward song, both. Uh, lyrically but also um, in terms of the melody and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it manages to sort of encompass everything that they are doing across the record in terms of sound while also kind of like saying like this is the final thesis statement for an album that touches on you know which well i think we'll talk about later it touches on all kinds of things ranging from like you know sexual abuse to police uh, brutality to um you know consumerism and environmental destruction and uh, but does so in a way that is not uh, preachy, but rather is more about these kind of vignettes of, of life uh, in society right now. Uh, we live in a society. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I really think Poem is uh, the song that, perhaps it is the song that spoke the most to where we are in 2017, or 2018, excuse me, years are rapidly blowing together. Um and for that reason, uh, but also because I think it is like probably my favorite U.S. girls song, period, um, and the definitely one of the most well constructed ones uh, for that reason, "Poem" by U.S. Girls. Yeah, I just I have to agree. I think "Poem" uh, it's on the short list for my favorite songs of the year. Full stop. Uh, I think that, um, and uh, really also on the short list for uh, my favorite U.S. Girls tracks, uh, which uh, maybe is a longer list than yours, uh, I think that it functions really well as kind of a manifesto or a mission statement. 
and one that in a year, and I suspect we'll be talking about a lot of manifestos and mission statements that albums have moving forward. To a degree, to a degree. Uh, a f- at least a few, I know, for me. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, it, it, or at least kind of their positioning of, you know, quote, what they have to say about the state of things. Yeah. I think that what I, I really liked about um, this track was not only, I think, the, you know, like you said, the kind of tastefulness of the circular synth pattern, and also just the, like, I hate to say sublime because that's a very loaded word, but just the like perfectly chosen uh, like mo- like vocal progression. Yes, that kind of guides the track and makes it. It gives it that kind of like end credits feeling that it a very, very much, good penultimate song should. Yes, that that really like that through like the melody that you're able to reinforce the theme of. It is the penultimate. Well, it is the penultimate, but uh, just in terms of the end credits thing, that's kind of interesting that you say that because, of course, the the album or, is titled "U.S. Girls in a Poem Unlimited." Yeah, like so. I, it is. It does almost have that kind of like elegiac kind of feel to it. Yeah, exit or, music for an album. Or, or at the, or I would say more kind of, or like say the emotional climax leading into the end credits, sure. where the last track being. But at any rate, it has yeah, like it it manages to sort of guide that. But it, like a great unity of kind of the fundamentals of pop construction yeah. with like a very sort of well considered and sort of moving away from the kind of like vignette storytelling that's the norm for U.S. girls to just kind of like a declaration. Yeah. Like the it is the poem that the album is basically building up yeah. to. Yeah. Um, I think you should definitely listen to this album. Uh, and yeah, we'll spend a bit more time talking about it later. I think so. Yeah. All right. So. Um, I do want to make one brief uh, mention, just because, you know, sometimes there uh, is a sort of a song title that uh, kind of strikes your fancy. Um, my song title of the year, it's also the album title, and the album is actually quite good, is um, How to Socialize and Make Friends by uh, Camp Cope. Um, both because of, like, just, I don't know, that's kind of innately funny, just naming an album. Uh, an album that a lot of which is, like, about antisocial behavior and, like, uh, people being shitty to you. Um, naming an album, so how to socialize and make friends. Um, also, within the context of the song, it's basically a sort of diss track about an annoying guy who's trying to hit on you, and you're suggesting that he should read a book called How to Socialize and Make Friends. Um, so that's kind of funny. Um, anyway, I don't know if you have a, another song. Yeah. Uh, so I just um, I I don't I can't declaratively say this is my favorite song title of the year, but in terms of uh, you know, one of the most memorable uh, that I think the song is kind of carried, although never actually mentioned within the song itself, is the uh, collaborative cut between Milo and Elucid, uh, Circumcision is the first betrayal. Oh, that's good, that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately we didn't have an equivalent this year of uh, I Break Mirrors with My Face in the United States. I mean, that's, I, I you know, what can you yeah. do with perfection? Yeah, that's true. Anyway, so let's, um, we always try to move on from the negative and accentuate the positive here. So yeah. let's talk about our disappointments of the year. Um, yeah, first of all. Just so, br- uh, briefly, I think my uh, disappointment of the year was not uh, that crushing of a disappointment. I wasn't terribly disappointed by a lot of albums this year, although... I think some albums this year maybe didn't blow me away like I would have wanted to. I would agree with that. Um, I would say that in terms of... I think some people might say, oh, what were you expecting? But in terms of disappointment, um, uh, I would have to go with uh, the new Cloud Nothings album, Last Burning Building. Mm, Yeah. Uh, I think for me, because 
and I'm not trying to be, look, Dylan Baldy is a much more talented musician, has put out many, um, if not classic, then at least a cult classic discography of, like, noise rock and kind of 90s, like, pop punk. Yeah, um, alt-emo. Alt-emo, post-hardcore. He's actually, I think Cloud Nothing's actually have a surprisingly solid discography. I, I think once, if, if, you know, if, if, if in indie rock singles collections were such a thing, uh, Cloud Nothings could have an all-time great, like... Cloud Nothings, yeah, I, I think why Last Burning Building kind of falls so really short for me is I just feel like it shouldn't be that difficult to have a really kind of engaging, like, gripping uh, Cloud Nothings uh, return to their, like, darker, more post-hardcore sound, given, like, the title, the time we're living in, the angsty song titles. Yeah. But I just think that it, it just seems performative. And that, that was maybe disappointing for me as someone who really kind of misses uh, <coughs> that two-year stretch where we got Attack on Memory and Here and Nowhere Else back-to-back. Yeah. I think that a lot of indie rock this year um, was good, but it lacked a certain, it lacked uh, like a certain, certain kind uh, of edge to like it. a certain virtuosic edge that yeah. I think Cloud Nothings were really kind of, they were the ones bringing as young artists like five years ago in the indie wave. Yeah. They were bringing that kind of virtuos virtuosic post-hardcore edge to indie rock, and I'm kind of sad they don't seem to be able, they, their kind of return to that this year they just kind of landed flat for me. I would agree with you on, on that. Um, I think my issue with it also was that, like, lyrically, I think Cloud Nothings has always benefited from a kind of, like, ambiguity about what is actually being talked about, or a kind of, like, it's not specific so much as a sort of general malaise or a kind of, like, general bad faith kind of thing. Like, I mean, I think the emblematic um, Cloud Nothings lyric for me is, I can't remember what song it's from off the top of my head, but, you know, I want a life, that's all I need lately. Uh, modern Act. Modern Act, yes. Um, and this album, the, the lyrical subject matter was both too specific, but also, like, not actually addressing the kind of, like, you know, if you're going to do that, you should at least try to address the kind of wider socio-political implications of what is going on that is yeah. making you feel this way. And he doesn't really do that. Um, also, the I don't know the production on it struck me as somewhat muted, which I found strange. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's I don't it's kind of a shame they went from like Steve Albini and John Congleton to whoever they're producing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, although Albini is of course singular, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so my disappointment in terms of, and this is also probably in terms of what the hell was I expecting, but, um, you know, maybe maybe this man was, was my Beyonce uh, as, a, as a sketchy uh, white dude from, uh, from, rural, uh, from a rural suburban area. Anyway, the new Eminem album is awful. And, and the, I, I feel like I shouldn't have to say this at this point, but the reason I am particularly disappointed with it is that, like, a, it was promised as, okay, this is, like, back to, you know, we're going back to the beginning, no more of this bullshit, like, we're getting rid of the, the guest stars, we're getting rid of the, like, pop courses, this is gonna just be attack, attack, attack kind of thing. And there were, like, glimmers on Kamikaze of, like, what I and, you know, every uh, white person who was, I assume, uh, given a uh, copy of this from Shady LP once you uh, legally turn 13, that's uh, what you get. Um loved about this guy and like it is there in individual moments and he is still a very technically talented rapper in terms of like the ability to construct rhyme schemes the ability to like 
you know, modulate his flow, rap fast, rap slow, go back and forth, etc., etc. But the problem is, is that he has just, he has completely forgotten how to construct a song around his rapping, um, and that's what the, what the beginning and the end of this is. Is like there is one decent song on the album, and it's Fall, and that is mainly just because the Bon Vera chorus is very nice. Um, but also, you have to deal with him like anyway. You have to deal with him like just being a forty-five-year-old man who's still like throwing in homophobic slurs at people. Um, and it's just like, I, look, like we could have a whole argument about problematic lyrical subject matter in hip hop, and we would be here all all day about what that means and what that doesn't mean. But it just strikes me as incredibly childish and pointless um, in in this case, and it's almost like he is wasting his talent to be rapping in this inc- like technically incredible way about such petty fucking things um, on this record and. Like, is it better than, like, the past several Eminem albums? Like, yes, by default, because he's not, like, having Ed Sheeran do choruses for him, and he's not, like, you know, constructing these, like, story songs about whatever the hell. But, like, uh, I was just, I was promised something as a result of this record, and it uh, annoyed me greatly. Um, and also, um, it is it is also uh, technically connected to a, ver- a movie I've heard is very bad. Oh, um, Venom. Venom. <laughs> like, and that, that chorus is also emblematic of his inability to write a song. Like, like that chorus is so... God, like, there was, a, there was a difference between being catchy and being just annoying, and he does not know the difference anymore. Anyway, that was my uh, two-minute hate, and I can, I, we will move on. Unless you have something to um, say. I, I mean, I, this is a tangent, so I'll keep it brief, but... I will shout out the 2018 being the year that we learned, uh, you know, after at the beginning of the year where we it was proven that, like, global uh, minority-led blockbusters can be very successful and critically acclaimed. Uh, we learned in the second half of the year that audiences don't actually give a shit about quality films. They just want them to be dumb and yeah. fun. Yeah. And I stop mean, trying so hard. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe like, you know, maybe, well, was Venom the... Uh, the, the Black Panther for sketchy white dudes. You be the judge, folks. I mean, the, 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 it's in the receipts. Also, um, I, 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 I mean, I don't know why we're talk, I, talking about this on the podcast, but I think we might actually have to go see Aquaman. Okay, well, maybe. That's a, that's a whole other the, kettle of fish. Yeah. But anyway, um, well, uh, yeah, yeah. anyway. Uh, yeah, so the, the spinach. Moving on from that, yeah. So let's move on to another somewhat negative category where, you know, there are some albums that come out and you can say this is artistically very valid or I get what this artist was going for, but I just don't find it actively pleasurable to listen to. So this is what we have always referred to as the spinach album, which is something that is artistically admirable, but for whatever reason did not come yeah. with you. Uh, A.K.A. for me, uh, the uh, Bjork Award. <laughs> yes, the Bjork Award. <laughs> that's, that's, I like Bjork. I just, I'm, I'm too pleb to deal with uh, some of the more... Uh... And yet Julia Holter is, is okay. But... Yeah, well, I mean, my spinach album this year is Julia Holter. Oh, okay, well, okay, um, well then. Yeah, we sort of, I mean, I just think that, like, look... <coughs> folks it's it's a 90 minute art pop album there's like a piece that just samples like buzz saws and violins it sounds like what the knife was doing in the early 2010s called every day is an emergency um it's a slog i don't make it all the way through it and I, re- I i did try i tried a few times but there were some incredible songs on there and 
the thing is a freaking thesis in terms of like each song having like an individual conceptual or lyrical standpoint she writes songs about people living in 14th century monasteries she writes songs about uh like ecological collapse um there's some just breathtaking arrangements the whole thing is probably a masterpiece but i can't say that with any confidence because as i've said for maybe the third time now uh, i again did not get through it uh, well there you go would you just out of curiosity because you mentioned the knife like on a on a is this like more listenable than shaking oh, the habitual this is absolutely more listenable listenable than shaking the habitual okay. first off there are a number of four to five minute songs which just resemble <coughs> sort of like uh say like there are parts of this which resemble like kate bush on a bad acid trip okay and there are parts of this actually you know what i think that's actually not a terrible way of describing kate yourself. bush on a bad acid trip yeah let's go with that. okay well there you go okay yeah. so my number uh my miss finish album is i guess kind of similar in that like i really wanted to like this record and i do like it as a like an, an, a highly individual artistic statement and it's one of those things where i feel that you know, if I were a different person, I would respond to this more. And it's Room 25 by No Name. Um, like, she is a great artist. Like, she is a singular artist who is uh, laughing about things that are not often laughed about, about, like, um, female sexuality, about, uh, in, a, in a very nuanced and, like, not um, gross and degrading way. Um, and and uh, about, you know just everything from, like, black identity politics to, uh, you know, ge queer gender theory to um, all these kind of things, but also, like, there are lighter moments, there are love songs that are, like, very intimate and, and good, but, and the beats are some are interesting, albeit I will say that the beats do get kind of samey across the course of the record, and they are all kind of on this level of, like, being this kind of jazz-influenced kind of, um, well, what this comes down to is that I don't like beat poetry, and, like, she is, her delivery is very, because she started out as a spoken word poet, and, I mean, of course, you know, we can debate what is the line between hip-hop and spoken word poetry, well, okay, but her delivery is very similar to that of a beat it's poet. Common. Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, I wouldn't I'm, 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 it's, no, I'm it's, shitposting. It's even more than... I, it is even, it is, it is much even more so than... Than common. Yeah. I mean, maybe, like, early, early common. Um, and I mean, I don't want to, like, necessarily, like, you know, I mean, I like some of Common's music, but, like, just to say, like, I do think she is, like, has a, as a more novel perspective and a more, like, um, in-depth investigation of issues than, than Common does, oh, at least yeah. now, anyway. Um, but I just, I, the, her vocal cadence just, I, I can't get into it. Like, I keep trying, and I find her really admirable as an artist and as a person. Um, like, she, like... I mean, I out of out of everybody like who we're going to talk about this day, like she is probably the most genuinely decent human being out of anybody that we're going to talk about. Um, or well, maybe I don't know. I mean, who? But but like, uh, and you know that definitely comes through in her music and what she writes about. Um, and I again like I think if you are somebody who the lyrical perspective of this album is more uh, in, with in line with your life experience, you are probably going to find much more in it than I did. Um, but nevertheless, I I you know music is all about subjective personal reactions, and I just her cadence and delivery 
drives me up the wall and it prevents me from fully engaging with Room Project and what she's trying to do. But I also think that you should listen to Room 25 by No Name. Uh, I will agree. Uh, I think that uh, this album was sort of, I don't want to say on the knife edge for me on whether it would kind of fall into that category or whether, like I really had to ask myself uh, listening to this, uh, just I read, like this is this is very thoughtful, but am I enjoying this just because I recognize it's of quality? Yeah. And I think that might just have a bit to do with kind of uh, the way that the production can kind of, I think, bleed together. I think that's um, part of it. If the production had been a little bit more distinct. Yeah, like, I think that's, so that's, I think, <coughs> what kept it off my, like, list, but uh, as, I guess, we'll just mention uh, briefly later on, like, it, it uh, was, uh, it, it was something that, you know, definitely among the, I thought, the better albums that came out this year. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so uh, let's uh, flip this around. So there are also yeah. albums where you're like, man, I enjoy listening to this, but, uh, ooh, geez. Um, yeah. uh, can I say this is a great record? Not really. Yeah. Um, so this is our guilty pleasure category. Yeah. Um, so my guilty pleasure is uh, Playboy Cardi's Die Lit. And the reason that is my guilty pleasure is because... A study in contrast with the uh, with the previous album we just yeah. talked about. Um, because I, you know, uh, I agree with all the people who are angry. Like, I... I agree with the kind of critical opinion that logs this album saying it's psychedelic and minimalist and like a total, you know, like turn to 11 uh, SoundCloud era like rap, but done with like with big budget with intent yeah. and like a visionary producer. That being said, uh, Playboy Cardi is not a very good rapper. And there are other rappers who, like, I don't even think he's as good a rapper as, say, Lil Uzi Vert. Wow. Okay. Or, or actually, there might be about as good technically, but, yeah. like, I, I, like, he, I think to me, like, he's less dynamic. Like, he's less he, dynamic and there's less of an actual perspective to Like, him. Uzi can kind of, does the depressive croon thing. Yeah. 21 Savage's whisper, like, even 21 Savage with his whisper flow. Yeah, it's like, a distinctive I, thing. Yeah, like, I, I just think that Cardi has... It's weird because on the one hand he he like manages whether it's like beat selection and kind of like having like just these tons of very short um, dynamic tracks. I don't think his his albums are much more listenable than a lot of his contemporaries. Oh yes, but I just think that has very little to do with what he's bringing to the table. Yes, which is why it's my guilty pleasure. Yeah, I think this is the, yeah. I mean the way that I've heard this album described is it's all about you know the the quote vibe like yeah he is. Not a very good rapper, technically. Um, he has, uh, I'm going to say, almost nothing to say, lyrically. Um, and, yeah, it's one of those albums where the beat work is very good, but I would want to hear almost anybody else over this. Like, you know, when you get into something like, I mean, let's compare this to, like, a Future album, right? Like, I think very similar in terms of the way people respond to them. It's all about the vibe. It's all about that druggy, kind of psychedelic, like, yeah. thing. But, let me just... Um, yeah. But the thing about Future is that, like, as, as, like, awful as some of the things he says are, there was nevertheless a kind of, like, perspective to that, and there was, like, an, a core of it of, like, this idea of, like, nothing makes me happy, and, like, I'm actually, like, a really depressive person, and, uh, you know, all of this, like, I mean, in a certain sense, it, it sort of becomes strangely anti-capitalist because of, like, the meaninglessness that it ascribes to material wealth um, and conventional definitions of success, uh, or perhaps I am overreading. But anyway, um, 
you know, whereas Playboy Cardi, it's just sort of on this level where there's no particularly novel perspective to it. And I don't even mean, like, in terms of, like, somebody like No Name, who, you know, is obviously coming from a, from a very particular novel perspective and speaking about things that are often not spoken about in hip-hop. But even somebody, like you said, like Lil Uzi Vert, he is at least, you know, even though some of the lyrical subject matter is pretty rote, at least he is, like, talking about, you know, depression and mental health and you know, things that are at least a distinct perspective. Well, he's more dynamic. He's on, more dynamic. On the mic. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's, like, I just think uh, I'll uh, just sort of wrap up and kind of uh, moderate my condemnation a little bit and say that I do think that, like, not every rapper can kind of succeed in creating the just... It's just, it's kind of, like, surreal... And it doesn't maybe work over a whole album, but like the, the real highlight tracks, and then I think there are a few on here that are the equals of Magnolia, although maybe because they're kind of revisiting the same ideas, they have less impact. Mm -hmm. But they just kind of, um, they're just uh, like more kind of, weirdly more high energy. Like, yes, they are monotone uh, in terms of the performance, and there's nothing really being talked about, but I think that they have like a lot more momentum and creativity and I think that, uh, I don't think Cardi has nothing to do with that, even though I, I don't think he has a lot going. Fair enough. So my, my uh, guilty pleasure is, is kind of similar, um, and it's also kind of like the thing that makes me feel guilty about liking it is the fact that I also just mentioned that I don't, that I didn't particularly respond to No Name, is, uh, is Astro World by Travis Scott. Um, similarly, and I, but I, although I would think, I would say more so, like, Beat-wise, production-wise, this is, like, a, an, a like, I, I think, frankly, like, in, in terms of hip-hop, like, it is almost a, a vision of the future in terms of, like, you know, what he, well, he and his producers, I mean, this is the, the real question, is how much of this album's success has to do with Travis Scott. Um, you know, as far as the guy who is, I guess, the sonic ringleader of this, you know, of, of, the, of the album and the guy who put it together... Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say who put the shit together. together. I'm the glue. Yeah. So to quote to quote the man himself. Um, as far as that goes, I mean, okay, yes. Like he is the guy who managed to somehow get you know Stevie Wonder to play harmonica on "Stop Trying to Be God" and combine it with um, James Blake, like doing a vocal sample. He's the guy who you know weaves together all these different voices throughout the record and manages to sort of do all these things and the 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 beat work is like genuinely incredible like it's psychedelic it moves through different sections of course you know very, i mean of course the big hit being sicko mode which has like you know three four actually distinct parts to it in a kind of like you know hip-hop version of a bohemian rhapsody but almost every track on the album has a beat switch in it at some point like stargazing has a pretty great beat switch um stop trying to be god has a great beat switch um, and there, there are, you know, experiments with, like, older forms of hip-hop, like, the obvious one being R.I.P. Screw is, like, a sort of old-school, uh, chopped and screwed, like, you know, um, Houston kind of song that he combines with nouveau kind of electronic beats and things like that. And, like, from that perspective, like, if you could release this as a beat tape, like, it's actually pretty incredible. But... Um, Travis Scott is not, like, he's not an awful rapper technically, and, like, you know, you can, on some of the songs he does manage to get a certain flow going that can get you into it, 
But he is saying, the problem is, is like, it's fine to make hype pony music. Like, that's fine. We need that as a society. But the issue is, is like, the beats are so psychedelic and like singularly created that the fact that the lyrical subject matter is like so rote and so saying nothing and so just like, just using empty signifiers, basically, um, really grates on me. And it's really unfortunate that like, somebody wasn't rapping over this about something that meant anything. It could, it could be at least interesting and personal. Yeah, exactly. Like, even if, again, like... But it we, just seems interchangeable. It seems completely interchangeable, like, what he is what he is actually talking about on, on the record. I mean, there's a fact, there's a reason that the only thing that people remember from this album lyrically is Drake's verse on Sicko Mode, and that's only because of, like... It has personality. It has personality, and there are like subliminal things about maybe he's a uh, maybe Kim Kardashian is supposedly cheating on Kanye West, uh, with Drake, uh, according to Drake. Um, so anyway, nevertheless, um, an album that I felt guilty about liking because it it really challenges like how much of this is like the creation of the artist whose name is on the packaging, and also. Speaking of that, because of the fact that he released it without crediting features at all, it becomes incredibly difficult to figure out who to credit for particular things. Like at the very least, if it's a if it was an older hip hop release, like it would like say, okay, um, stop trying to be God would say featuring James Blake and Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Sicko Mode would say featuring Drake. Um, they don't, and he just sort of interchangeably throws these people in at, at intervals to provide sonic texture to the songs, which is great. But it's almost like, how much can I credit you, Travis Scott, for, for doing this? So that's where my guilt comes in. But it is a fun record, so. Yeah, uh, I think there's, uh, it's definitely a highlight of the year. I think it was a bit too long. It is too um, long, also. And I, Which I was think, a trend in hip-hop this year. Things, uh, things are way too done. Yeah, to long. and I think it just, it while good... I think that he still has yet to top uh, Rodeo uh, in terms of kind of like the punky energy that he's bringing. True. And he's probably not ever going to do that because he's just too big now. So yeah. I don't know. For me, it's that's definitely less energetic than Rodeo, although I would argue that it makes up for that with the, the level of texture that the beats have. So, you know, it's kind of a I, I definitely, yeah, I think that it definitely, like for me, if it wasn't. Like, if it didn't have that kind of bloated second half, true. then it would be his best album. That's, yeah, that's true. It's too long. All right, so uh, we're going to uh, cut off from here. Um, as always, our uh, email is thefairscode.gmail.com. Our blog, thefairscode.blogspot.com. We'll have show notes for everything. And then please join us in a few days when we uh, give you the second half of this episode where we count down our top ten albums. <laughs>